Welcome to another episode of Bluebird and Bluebird Radio. Uh, Clint here, as always. How you doing, bud? Fantastic, my man. How about you? Ah, uh, doing well. Uh, the past, since we recorded the last episode, I have not stopped moving. Um, <laughs> I don't really get to stop moving until after Tinley. I've decided, uh, and and that's not that far away. Um, so uh, no, good times, good times. Um, we're gonna jump right into our banter here, but before we get to that. I, I, Clint and I are flipping stoked about tonight because we have yet to do a dedicated hog nose snake episode. We've dabbled with hogs. We've had guests on that that you know worked with hog nose snakes, but we haven't just hit it on the head. And uh, we've told everybody that there will be hog nose episodes. Um, so we have with us tonight uh, John Rice, correct? Yep. Yes, with Fathom Hogs. I guess one of two people. Yes, yes, yes one of two. Yeah, we got with John Rice and Mitch Davy. Uh, there we Davey's go. Out of South Florida, and I'm out of Central Ohio. Yep. So um, we'll be talking with John tonight about husbandry and a little bit about morphs and just you know everything hognose snakes. So if you've been waiting for a hognose episode, this is the episode for you. Uh, and John's name was brought to us by a listener, so this is proof that if you send us names, we will find those people. And, and hunt them down on the interwebs and, and, and get them on the show. So uh, with that being said, we're going to do quick updates tonight because we want to get in with the episode. But um, I want to say uh, that I have been, I am incredibly humbled. I have been blown away by the response of the book episode. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Clint because I think he did a great job leading that one. So thanks, bud, on <laughs> no that problem, one. Man. Pleasure was mine. Yeah, and I've had so many people reach out for the book, uh, resultant of the episode. I've actually had quite a few people reach out for False Water Cobras, which is awesome, because we still have quite a few here at the uni. So if you are interested <laughs> in one of those, hit me up, listener special. Um, you can't beat the price, I will say that, because uh, I'm just using these things to buy rats. That's all I really care about at this point. Um, but thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody. And if you're interested in the book... Uh, or you bought a book, and, and, and or you want to get the book. I will be at Tinley. I will be at Russ Gurley's table from at least 10 to 1 or 2 on Saturday, maybe longer. Uh, maybe not, but to be brutally honest, I want to see everybody else at Tinley, too. So uh, there's that. But if you have the book, bring it to Tinley, and I'll sign it for you if you didn't get a signed copy. And then, obviously, if you're waiting to get the book and you'll be at Tinley, we'll have some hardbacks. I know we'll have a bunch of softbacks there, and I can absolutely... Uh, sign the book, and I would just love to see you and, and, and chat about the book. So that's kind of my biggest update. And then the only other thing is I hatched out yesterday, no, Sunday night, it's Tuesday, um, right before I headed to Southern West Virginia to start some crayfish field work, I checked the incubator. I'm down to three clutches, um, and I feel like talking about one clutch, because last episode I talked about the mystery clutch. Like, I didn't know what the hell was in that bin because my 15-year-old was checking snake eggs, threw it in the bin, and then forgot what snake. You thought it was Brooks, yeah. right? You oh. were, like, positive it was a Brooks. Yeah. Dead wrong. Couldn't be <laughs> close to that because I opened up the tub of the mystery clutch, and then it was like, where the hell did these black rat snakes come from? Um, and then I remembered Colin and I were driving home uh, from West Liberty, and there was a black rat snake in the middle of the road perfectly coiled in the middle of the road and i thought you know well this thing's dead 
and turned around to get it up, get it out of the road, or, or actually I turned around to grab it and chuck it in my freezer because I thought we can dissect that in herpetology. Um, and then when I picked it up, it was alive, very much alive, but it was acting really stunned. And I think that it pinged off a car, but didn't get hit. So I thought I'll bring it to the house, throw in my quarantine room. Well, apparently it, it was in the quarantine room. Uh, it ate a small rat. So I thought, okay, I'll keep it for another week. Well, I was away for that week. Colin, my son, was checking things. It's what laid the mystery eggs. So wow. it was an even bigger mystery because I was like, where are the he- black rat snakes? I didn't breed black rat snakes. <laughs> what the hell? Like, it took me until I was halfway through West Virginia to realize, because it was Sunday when I was leaving, oh, that has to be what that was. And I called Colin. Yeah, it was the black rat snake. So the mystery clutch is solved. They will be... I guess hanging out with me through the wintertime, I'll ball come up a little bit and then let them go because they just hatched, like, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's getting cool here where we're at. And then I also uh, had an, uh, another clutch. I had two clutches of Hondurans, and um, these little white pink snakes popped out. I'm not a morph guy, Ghost. so I was like, what are those? Because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. mine are orange. So apparently I had het for ghost. And um, I have to say, the Hondurans have captured, like, I like those. Um, mm-hmm. They're pretty freaking cool. So They're chunky little babies, too. Yeah. I mean, they come out and, with good size. And I've been having a hell of a time getting these Lampropeltas to eat. And every single, single Honduran from the first clutch ate first time. Uh, I mean, they've already gobbled down, like, I take all the, the rodents that the other guys aren't eating and just dump them down there. So I'm going to have eight-foot... Honduran rat snake, or sorry, Honduran milk snakes by Christmas time. That's what's going to happen. Those things come out and they can uh-huh. almost take a furry, man. Yeah, and no. They just boom. Yeah. So, so no, they, they've gone way up on my I actually, my I remember a story from a friend who <laughs> got one to eat while it was still partially in the egg. I, I can believe be, that. Because of how voracious <laughs> wow. of feeders they are, they just yeah. to try it, and sure enough, they took one while still half no, the body was I, in I the egg. I am extremely impressed with them. So, yeah. uh, But other than this is the episode that will come out before Tinley, so some people may be listening to it on their way to Tinley. Uh, but, yeah, that's my big big deal. And even if you're not affiliated with the book, just come by and say hi. If you've got an idea for the episodes or, or anything with the podcast, Clint and I both will be there. I, of course, will be hanging out at the Metazotics table for at least a little bit. Um, and, um, yeah, so, so say hello. So that's my update. What's up with you, Clint? Oh, man. So, as you know, a few snakes came in. Yeah, uh, just a few. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, we've got so many babies now that we're uh, we're working on, we're feeding. And, you know, just as I'm sitting here and, and you're talking about the fall season, just, you know, need to get, get move some of those just for food, I'm thinking, you know what? Yeah, I've got so many babies stacked up at this moment. Uh, everyone, the CC radio discount that's always uh, on the website for 5% at metazotics.com, I'm going to move that to 15% until I get tired of it. Um, so hop on there, use that, get 15% off because, yeah, we've got so many babies, it's it's crazy right now. Um, but talking about Lampropeltas, so I just wanted to share this with you. I think we're sitting on somewhere around, I don't know, 40 gray bands, maybe more. <laughs> and um, so I'm like, okay, you know, I, I know I know they aren't the easiest to get rolling. So got a bunch of tiny pinkies frozen you know we we boiled them i scented with a nose i scented uh you know half of them with a nose half of them with house geckos put them in left it overnight in the dark you know just give them plenty of time and man would you believe every one of them 
told me to go f myself and didn't <laughs> touch anything. <laughs> and <laughs> not a yep. single one of them. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, mm. this is going to be fun. I, I thought yeah. at least you know four. Give me like mm-hmm. four or five. We'll take. Nope, none of them. None of them. So yeah, that's uh, this is going to be an adventure for me. We'll uh, mm-hmm. continue down that path. But other than that. Um, I mean, all those Floridas are doing fantastic. The Easterns, everything like that that you sent, uh, those things great. are doing great. Um, we've, I mean, just really, it's rolling. Uh, my poor nursery guy is, you know, he's got his hands <laughs> full back there. Um, but uh, things are going all right. Uh, we're seeing kind of that, what I would call the that fall kind of tilt down uh-huh. where, you know, the animal sales tend to slow up a little bit across the country. Um, but uh, we're we're certainly. I mean, everything else is is still cranking. I mean, you know, you may not buy new animals, but you you still need to feed the ones you got. Heck yeah. So, uh, so still lots of movement there. And I think we also. I've always noticed this when when you're about two weeks out from Tinley, mm-hmm. things slow up too. Every you know, so oh, many yeah. people are waiting to see what they're going to get at Tinley. But um, I'm excited. I'm excited to get to hang out with you in a few weeks, my man. Yep. Uh, Tinley is always so much fun. So just like Zach said, if you guys are out there, please come by the table, say hi, let's snap some pictures. Uh, I mean, it's I just I always have a blast out at that show. So looking forward to it. Yep. Excellent. No. So uh, I think that we just jump right in. How's that sound? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Sounds good. So our episode tonight is with Mr. John Rice. How you doing, man? I'm doing wonderful, doing wonderful, just out here hanging in the snake building. Uh, did some maintenance out here today, fed some babies. Uh, lots, lots, lots of always going on with these hognose snakes, that's for sure. Oh, I, I can believe it. So, like, the, the we have them here at the school. I've done a lot of work with, with them, but we, we produce, like, 40. Heck yeah. And my students act like 40 is 4,000. <laughs> and, and I'm looking at you, and I just see tubs. Yeah, so this is this is a big operation. This is not a small operation. Is that a fair statement? No, that's that's a fair statement. Um, you yeah. know, I'm not I'm not the biggest in the world yeah. that uh, does western hognose snakes, but uh, you know, I do hatch quite a few every year, and I think uh, this this year I'm right around six fifty. Uh, oh, 650, 700 nice. hognose snakes. Uh, it's been pretty steady. I don't really like to go above that. I like to focus on uh, quality more than yep. anything else, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and really, really get everything dialed in for those guys. But yeah, that's it's it's my uh, passion, man. You know, I got into these guys when I was young. I've got my first Western hognose snakes, and uh, uh, took a break from the species for a while. Did uh, did uh, boa constrictors for. A number oh. of years and then got back into them and just jumped in with both feet and yeah man it's uh, i've been breeding them now for a better better part of 10 12 years um and, and I, I got into them when they weren't cool they weren't the cool thing you know uh, it was mm-hmm. just uh, That's they, the best time yeah best time to get into them. yeah and it, mm-hmm. it, i i just got into them because i like hognose snakes and uh it's it's just been amazing where these guys have have uh, went to over the last few years. That's for that's for sure. Absolutely. Before we jump too far in, into the hog nose, because obviously we're going to get all over that. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to let's go back to the beginning. So, mm-hmm. how did you get involved with reptiles at all? Mm-hmm. Where where was the start? Where you know, get us that information. I, I, I love it. Okay, so uh, I, I grew up in a little little town called Norco, Ohio, and uh, 
I lived in the rural part of the of the city, and my neighbor, uh, you know, being out in the country, you have like two kids to play with on the in the whole block. You know what I mean? It's it's so we we spent our time uh, going through fields, playing in the creek and stuff. Well, well, my da- neighbor's dad was really interested in reptiles. Uh, he he kept a uh, he kept a large collection of species when he was younger. Had gotten out of it, but he really saw that we were interested in them and threw gasoline on it. He had. You know the books from Carl Caulfield, uh, Ross oh, Allen, uh, Ditmars. He had all those. So I just uh, had my face stuffed in those books, just reading and looking at pictures and uh, all the different field guides uh, from from back then. And uh, I, I got into them. It was probably I don't know. I was probably ten or eleven years old, and I would uh, you know save up. I'd go cut lawns. Uh, my my parents they they've supported me through this uh, journey from <laughs> from the get go, and. Uh, I would uh, go cut lawns, you know, for five bucks a piece, and save up all my money for for the month, and then go to the Columbus Reptile Show. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's one of the oldest ones <laughs> out there, and uh, yep. just go there and uh, just buy buy whatever I saved up money for. You know, I I really had a fascination with rat snakes back then. Uh, I had a bout with uh, eastern mud snakes when <laughs> you know th- there was a there was a those that flooded the the reptile industry that were just poor animals to uh to do remember the ball pythons coming in for four dollars each uh mm-hmm. you know from in the masses but that's what got me into it and uh you know it's just always been a passion since then crazy very cool. awesome very cool uh, i am 100 percent certain if you were at that show in the late 90s early 2000s we were probably bumping shoulders in the old armory yep. when you couldn't like get down it's a very that that was yep. the golden age of that show in my opinion i mean yes. it, it's a very different show now than it used to be uh i feel like i'm talking about you know back in my day we walked uphill both ways but it was a really different atmosphere um yes and it's crazy because there were people in that show then that are like big names now like brian barchek was there and bob yep. ashley was there um and that's when they were just getting started out so no, that's cool. That's real cool. So, you you we'll just jump into the hognose piece. Why hognose snakes? Uh, you, you know, you you obviously have been in this for a while, mm-hmm. and and now it's a if you're producing 650 of them a year, a I'm going to make every student listen to this podcast so they can shut up, <laughs> and then b um, obviously you're dedicated to this to the species. So so what about them? You know, does it for you? They, they are just so unique. I, I mean, you know, uh, I, I've dealt with many different species throughout my life, and uh, hognose snakes are just unique. Whether it's mm-hmm. uh, the social aspect, they're very active. They're very yeah. active all the time. So I really enjoy watching them. Uh, the rostral scale. I mean, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. kind of a, a unique thing. If easterns were easier to keep, I would probably keep those over the westerns because I really feel like, you know, westerns, they're hognose snakes, but the easterns are true. Like it's like the king of hognose. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, they're they're just amazing. So uh, westerns were it, you know, that that just uh, I like I said before, I had gotten some wild caught uh, westerns when I was I had 12 or 13 years old. I kept them for a few years. They they did they did well, and then 
at that point in my life, I wanted to try something new after I was succeeded with a species. Mm-hmm. So I think I traded them for a green anaconda or something like that at, <laughs> at that point in time. You know, whatever really, really, really logical. Yeah, whatever, whatever little kid needs for sure. Um, but uh, you know. Like I said, I, I got out of them for a while, and then I, I jumped back into them. And a lot of it uh, to do with that was uh, there was a couple new color mutations that came out. There was hypo and albino at that point in time. There, I think there was mm-hmm. some PPA floating around and exanthic as well, but they, they were still real rare. But uh, the Evans hypo was out, and uh, I, I had gotten into those. Uh, and shortly after that, uh, Jeff Galewood uh, from just up north from me, uh, he he got he came out with that Arctic uh, gene. Mm-hmm. Back then, I, I think the the proper term for it, and we should still call it that JMG exanthic. Um, that's what that's what he actually named that. Um, but it was just phenomenal what that gene did. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that really sparked a sparked a fire for me to to really jump in uh, the different color mutations after that. And, and what? What year would you say that was when that was all starting to kind of matriculate? Maybe 2014. Okay. Um, you know, you know, probably right around there. That's that's when the Arctic gene uh, had come out, and I'd gotten, I'd had hognose snakes before that. Uh, the, the years leading up to you know jumping into the Arctic, but I mostly kept a collection of maybe seven or eight animals, and and uh, you know it was nothing more beyond that. So, but but now, like I said, I've I've really exploded my collection <laughs> since since that point in time, and I do this by uh, you know primarily by myself. I have one guy that comes out here and works with me, but we run this facility. Like it's it's not like I have a ton of people coming in and working for me or anything. Just me and him out here grinding, uh, you know, day in day out, uh, just having fun. Like there's nothing nothing I could uh, picture myself doing other than this. Uh, so, so this is a full time job for you. Yes. Is yep. that it? Holy yep. hell! Yep. Nice. Yep. Very I nice. I uh, I took a break from the from the other world of working in February of this year, and made this my full time gig. So yeah, it's it's been an incredible journey. Incredible. <laughs> a, little, a little exciting. A little scary, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I, I've never same, not, man, yeah, yeah, you know, I've never not had a job, you know, it was, it was kind of crazy, exactly. you know, I, I, I had a very successful career, you know, it, uh, I worked with Darden restaurants and I worked with a, an MSO for a couple of years in a, another a sector, and it, uh, it, it was just kind of, it was very, it was very rewarding, but also nerve wracking at the same time, like, all right, yes. it's all me now. Uh, it's time to do this. So, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Well, yeah. hey, uh, you know, we mentioned before we started recording that you kept a, a couple other species as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you're so heavy into one species, obviously it's going to make me curious, what are those others <laughs> that, you know, were tantalizing enough to, to make the cut? So, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I, here in my facility, you know, I'll speak to it later on. I, I cool the whole facility. Like the baby room gets cooled at the same time, everything like that, and it gets cold. So I can't keep any tropical species here. Um, you know, I would love to keep like uh, tricolor hognose snakes and things mm-hmm. like that, but they can't. They can't get as cold as I let it get out here. So I have to really look at species that can get cold. Um, and I kind of push the limits on that. Uh, you know, on, on some of the stuff, but I keep rosy boas. 
Um, oh, they cool. can they they can get very cold. Um, I keep uh, also some Asian rat snakes. I've got axanthic mandarin rat snakes. I've got yeah. I've Love got uh, I, some Japanese forest rat snakes, the conspics. I've got chopas rat snakes. Um, mm-hmm. They call them the Bella rat snake as Bellas. well. Mm-hmm. Yep, I've got those and. I have a nine-year-old daughter that has about twenty corn snakes as well. <laughs> oh, so, nice! Yes, yep. So, wow, that's the species that I keep out here. Yeah, I, I feel like this episode right now could go completely away <laughs> from hog nose snakes, and you and Clint could just talk about doing reptiles full time, and then oh, yeah. we have yet another Asian rat snake. Up here. Uh, I, I, do, I, I do, I do pale milk snakes as well. Pale milk Whoa, snakes, yeah, they're wonderful. I, I, you know, I kept them as, uh, I still keep them as pets. I don't have any want to breed them or anything, but. Uh, I didn't know. I was like, ah, they're never going to get big enough to breed. And then I sent pictures to one of my friends uh, that keeps pale milk snakes, and he said they were giants. I had no clue. (laughs) I mean, you know, they're probably two and a half foot long and probably about as, I don't know, maybe Mm -hmm. that big around. I mean, and he's like, these are the biggest pale pale milk snakes I've ever seen. Uh, But, yeah, I I think they're neat. I think they're neat as well. I bred those two different years, and for such a tiny snake – the eggs are like half their body. <laughs> I mean, I, I was floored when I saw how big the egg was compared to that little little species. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. But yeah, you know that that's uh, that's the other stuff I like. I would love to get into uh, some Gila monsters uh, because they can get cold as well. But uh, for now, uh, that's that's it. That's it for the most part out here. Gotcha. Cool. Right well. Before we jump into the husbandry, because that's kind of at a, a, a micro level, do you want to talk a little bit about your facility? Because it, I mean, we don't do a video aspect of this, so nobody can see it but Clint and I. But I can flat out tell you that it, you know, what I'm seeing behind John is pretty freaking impressive. So, what what is the actual building like? Is it part of your house, standalone building? Uh, Nope, it's a standalone building. I I built it, eh, I don't know, maybe eh, 12, 15 years ago. This emerged from my basement. When I first started uh, (laughs) keeping, you know, as it is for probably all of us, I was in a 14 by 14 foot room, and I was like, I got all this space. I'll never run out of space, you know. And uh, and and then you start hatching hundreds of hognose snakes, and you want to keep all of them. And because uh, I appreciate them all, you know, the the normals, the exotic color mutations, all of them. I think they're all cool as shit. But um, you know, it's uh, it's something that I had built, and then I, uh, I I converted into it. It was just an exterior garage that I'd use for my tractors on my farm and things like that. It's uh, it's about thirty by thirty five, and I outfitted it all for you know reptiles i put in two by six walls on the outside insulated everything two by six walls uh three separate rooms i've got a dedicated baby room a dedicated adult room and then a common area uh that i keep uh the the crappiest of the husbandry stuff out there the rodents i have a Uh uh i have a rodent rack out there um that you you really have to stay on top of but to keep uh everything smelling fresh but, um, you know, I, I just did everything the best I could and tried to design it the best way the first time. So I did the heavy insulation on everything. I did uh, all the floors are uh, concrete with an enamel coat on everything so everything can be scrubbed. Um, yeah, I got automated lighting. I'm using the Lux, uh, the Lux thermostats inside of each one of the rooms with a, a radiant heater. Um cool. 
Yeah, I mean, Ryan Dumas, I don't know if you guys know mm-hmm. uh, him yes, very yes. well. Yeah, great guy. Like, yeah, uh, you know, super me and, nice. Me and, yeah, yep. me and him hung out down there at the, in Cincinnati quite a few times. And, uh, you know, he... he uh, he he put me onto that luck stuff. He's like, dude, why ain't you doing this, man? Like that, it just automates everything. So I, you know, ramp up the temperature from, you know, the time the lights come on throughout the day, and then then back down and everything. But I just try to keep everything clean. Um, <laughs> that's my biggest thing: clean and organization. I, you know, they they can't see, but I mean, everything you know has its own ID code. Mm-hmm. Everything. I mean, mm-hmm. everything. When that when that snake goes here, it it lives here. Like it doesn't get switched up here or anything like that. Everything is very organized. Uh, you know, ID and just keeping everything uh, clean, 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 clean all the time. Uh, I do lots of cleaning of clean cages, uh, just <laughs> just because you know it's it's time. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know th- that's it, but. Yeah, two two main rooms here uh, that I keep snakes in. I don't really know the size of them. I'd say this one's 14 by maybe 20. And then the one on the other side is maybe 20 by 20 uh, that I okay. keep the adults in. Um, I use... Uh, you know, I use these Alu racks. These are imported from Belgium. Um, oh wow! They use an, they use an FB5 uh, Freedom Breeder tub, but mm-hmm. 90 per. Uh, they're they're a wonderful rack for for hog nose snakes, and then I use uh, uh, the Alu racks with the FB twenties um, in them for my adults, and then I use a ten series for um, males and raise ups uh, from ARS. So I've got oh, gotcha. you know ARS and Freedom mm-hmm. Breeder racks as well in the other rooms. So, how difficult was it to bring in racks from Belgium? It's easy. easy? Uh, yeah, yeah, very easy. Uh, very simple process. Um, you know, I, I brought in. I think the I wanted to see how I liked them. Um, so I only brought in a couple at first, but I think I ended up buying about twenty of these things. Um, and yeah, I, I just love them. I mean, you, you had to pay an import fee and import tax and things like that. But it was it was it was easy. It was it was very huh. easy. So yeah. Nice. Now, yeah. So you, I, you know, I know obviously the room's heated and whatnot. <clears throat> Are you climate controlling your room completely, or do you have supplemental heat on these racks as well? Uh, I, so some. Um, I do use some supplemental heat on the babies. I mostly do ambient, though. I use supplemental heat only a couple months out of the year. Uh, the rest of the time, I'm just all ambient. That's it. But I ramp it up, like I said, like uh, in the morning, you know, when the lights kick on and overnight, it's uh, about 74, 76 degrees in here. And then I ramp it up to uh, 80 until noon, and then it maxes out at 84, and then it goes back down the other way uh, slowly throughout the day, um, and then starts over. It's same same every day, uh, and I, I have great results with that. I mean, no supplemental heat. I I actually my one of you know a couple of my friends uh, have said it's incredible what you do. Like I, I've had the room. I've been out here feeding before, and uh, you know it's been 68 degrees. You know, and I, I'm out here feeding hognose snakes. No regurgitation issues, no nothing. Uh, you know, they, they just eat and they, they do great. So it's uh, it, it, these, these guys are durable, man. They're they're definitely a unique species. Uh, you know, very. You know, they're they dig in the ground a lot. So yes, they you know, do. They, you know, they they are known they are known for that, and they they come from areas that are very warm, but uh, they also live in the ground. So that that like. Uh, 
that temperature range that they are exposed to is probably more along the lines of the upper 60s to mid 70s you know when they're you know six inches to three feet underground you know it's uh Mm -hmm. just how it is so cool so so the lux thermostat is that what it was called yeah lux thermostat man they're awesome. Like I said, the, the rooms are so insulated in here, and I, I keep a fan to circulate air so there's no cold spots. Well, yeah, there might be. It would be minimal in the corners, if anything. But uh, these, it's just a plug-into-the-wall thermostat. And, uh, you know, I plug my uh, radiant heater uh, directly into that, and it controls everything from there. Holy crap. Uh, they're, they're amazing. Like, there's no, like, before this, you know, I, I, I keep uh, – what are they, little govies, uh, little mm-hmm. govie yeah. inside Love of each one of the rooms. Yeah. And I would track, you know, throughout the day. I'd be like, all right, I got to, you know, run into that room and unplug the heater. I got to run into this room, plug it in, turn it on, turn it up. And, you know, it take the, took the guesswork out of everything. Like I said, Ryan Dumas, I got to give him credit for that. He, he, he shared it on one of his stories on Instagram, and I was just like, what is that thing? And he's like, dude, like, you got to get one of these. Like, and it's just been a lifesaver for me. Wow, cool. Very, very cool. Very yeah, neat. absolutely. Okay. Well, with the room out of the way, let's just jump into your individual husbandry. So I know we, we've got adults, we've got babies, we've got grow outs, you know, all the above. So when we ask you these questions, you can talk about whatever you want. Um, but uh, as far as your, your general husbandry is concerned, mm-hmm. um, these guys are pri- they're, they're all being maintained in racks or anybody in like a rando xo or something like that or uh no all all of them are maintained in racks i you know i have you know some of the other species that i keep in and bigger taller uh type uh racks um but but that's it yeah the mostly uh well everything yeah i I can't think of a single one my daughter's got a corn snake in her room you know the one nuance (laughs) there that you know uh, that, that she keeps in there but yeah everything is maintained in racks very very cool so tell us what a rack tub looks like the inside of the rack tub like what what are we doing for the for the individual snakes okay what type of bedding Uh, water all the jet all that stuff yep yep so i use a an fb5 tub i want to say it's eh, maybe five inches wide uh three and a half four inches tall 18 and a half inches deep uh that's what i'm starting out all the babies in so uh, they, I'm using a coarse sandy chips inside of all all of my tubs. It's something very sanitary. It uh, comes irradiated. You know, it's it's very clean. Um, it, I keep uh, a piece of half inch PVC tubing inside of there with a water bowl, and that's about it. I try to keep it as basic as possible. Um, that way, I can get them started and thriving from an early age. Um, now, some of the older ones, uh, like the males, I will keep everything the same. Everything's on coarse sandy chips, um, but they have hide boxes, and uh, I use pieces of PVC with a uh, either a plastic or a styrofoam water bowl, depending on which side. If it's a plastic water bowl, it's for a 3-ounce. Um, if it's for a, a styrofoam water bowl, that's an 8-ounce water bowl that I use, and I use that to keep things clean. Um, you mm-hmm. know, there's no washing of water bowls and transferring oh. any type of pathogen into into another snake's environment. Um, so I, I keep that pretty basic there. Uh, the adult females, they're in the FB20 tub. They have a, an appropriate size hide for inside of there. And I also love putting moist moist hides inside of these cages as well. Uh, these guys love those things. Like, yes, uh, they do. 
You know, a majority of the year I keep a, a nest box, a hide box, a water bowl, and then on sandy chips for, for all my adult females. And I would say 70, 80 percent of the time they're in their they're in their nest box, you know, and I just have mm-hmm. it in there for way longer than they actually are using it for nesting mm-hmm. uh, just because they love it. And uh, what, what I use inside of that nest box is I, I just have a 55 gallon trash can that I do uh, expanded cocoa core yep. inside. I just throw a couple bricks in there, expand it to where you can't squeeze water out. But you can uh, feel the water in your hand when you squeeze it with a you know real strong fist, and uh, I put that in there, and those things love that. I mean, it helps with uh, shedding, helps oh, cool. with uh, helps with everything, and a lot of people are like respiratory infections. You know, you're keeping something too humid. <laughs> never, like I've I've never had a hog nose snake get a respiratory infection from uh, from a nest box or something like yeah. that. So I, I could say you know I've studied them out in the wild, and. When they're down in the burrows, I was dropping um, humidity probes down in there to kind of get what the ambient humidity was and understanding how burrows work. Because my crayfish also live in burrows. And, you know, some of those burrows were holding at like 88, 94% humidity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the habitats that they're seeking out, they might be living in the high prairie of Colorado, which is another place I've seen them, which is dry as hell. But you get three, four inches underground where they're hanging out and the sand's moist. Uh, yeah. So I, I totally can see where that's something that would benefit them. I, I do the same thing here at the university, too. They they have that. You know, there, there was a guy named uh, Dwight D. Plot that yeah. uh, wrote a paper mm-hmm. for the University of Kansas. And, I mean, the data that is inside yes. that paper is incredible. Um, I, I recommend it to anyone that's getting into hognose snakes if you want to nerd out and just uh, mm-hmm. have some you know reading material and a lot of it is like i don't know how to understand that but a lot of it is really valuable field data i mean he speaks about uh, you know some counties in kansas where that's that's probably some of the highest populations of hognose snakes in the country is in kansas uh but they're not seeing them on the surface a lot they're seeing them when they're tilling fields yeah, and uh, and you know they're they're living in the ground. You know a lot of these guys they'll eat, they'll hang out in the ground, they'll come out, you know, thermoregulate, move around, hunt some more, and they're going right back in. So uh, mm-hmm. it's it's real interesting in the range. You know, you're looking at something. You know, there's probably some intergrades going down into uh, you know southern Texas. Uh, you know, maybe the 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 Mexican hognose snake is integrating with some you know plains. You know, western dusky, whatever you want to call. Uh, you know they, what they've grouped uh, Western hognose snakes into now, uh, but I mean, you, you know, they're going from there all the way up to southern Canada. I mean, yeah, it's just incredible. You know, wow. the, the the range. That, range. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it's really incredible, and you know, just uh, you know, the environments that they're you know they're gonna they're just gonna love that humid area um, across all yep. that range. So this is, so is going to be a little out of out of order, but before I forget this question, because we're talking <laughs> about their range. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to go into all of them yet, you know, as far as morphs and whatnot. But is there a certain area that seems to be a little more of a hot area where morphs come from? I ask that because, like with black rat snakes, it seems to that it was Maryland and Ohio or where so many black rat mm-hmm. mutations kind of originated. So just curious, is there a Texas. little bit of a hot area? Texas, yeah, Texas, yeah, gotcha. yeah. A lot of a lot of a lot of stuff came out of Texas. Um, you know, David Turcotte, he he was uh, the originator of the lavender gene. It, it came out of Texas. You know, uh, 
Kevin Rhodes uh, finds a lot of stuff out there that, you know, there's some, some interesting color mutations that he's working with. Uh, another incredible guy in the hobby. He's, he's done a lot for the hobby as well. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of stuff right there in that Texas, North Texas, West Texas area. There's a lot of really neat, uh, you know, color mutations come of that, out of there. And I, I you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, hognose snakes with them being so, uh, you know, in the ground and, you know, they're probably not moving around that much. So the, the color mutations that are popping up, it's because, you know, their gene pool is so small. You know, mm-hmm. these guys, from the time they hatch to the time they die, they're probably moving in an area about the size of a football field, maybe two, you know, mm-hmm. and that's it. They're not traveling like garter snakes, you know. They're not up in trees like black rat snakes or, you know, moving around like uh, king snakes, some of the larger colubrids or anything like that. They're, they're, they're staying pretty stationary. So they're encountering each other, you know, brother, sister, and aunt you know uncle and you know that is probably influencing you know color mutations just because you know some are heterozygous and you know they're they're carrying those mutations mm-hmm. um so another really cool one uh while we're talking about uh you know ranges and and things is the sable which came from uh you know montana dan eby uh, was the one that originated that gene um you know they, they hatch seven days early you know from everything else yeah wow yeah so you, you can have, yeah, and when you're talking pure sable stuff that originated from Montana, they're they're hatching about. So that that takes me back to you know they they reclassified Nasicus you know from you know plains dusky and western you know year a few years ago you know they reclassify things all the time, but you know that really says something to me you know when you have mm-hmm. not only eggs hatching at different times but you know the. The, the actual physical characteristics of each one of the animals, uh, you know, being a little bit different from, you know, West Texas to Montana or Southern yeah. Canada, mm-hmm. you know, very, it makes very different. Total sense for those Montana animals to have a shorter yeah. incubation period because they have a shorter activity period. Oh, man. It's cold up there. Yeah, you're talking, <laughs> you know, they're probably brewmating, you know, six months out of the year. Yeah. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's cold up there. I know I'd talk, be talking to Dan Eby on the phone. Uh, and he, he would be, uh, you know, oh, I'd be like, oh, it's like 65 and sunny down here. And he's like, oh, we're getting a blizzard up here. And I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> yeah. freaking nuts. So, yeah. yeah. Very, very good, cool. Good stuff. Good stuff. So then with, with that, with that, you know, set up, um, mm-hmm. what, are, what are the temperatures for them? And then let's talk about activity period, not necessarily when you drop them for brumation or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, all right, temperature. I, I'm keeping these guys, like I said, I'm having ambient temperature of between 78 and 84 degrees. So I'm ramping that up. It's very specific of time of day. So in the morning, it's 78 when the lights kick on. It ramps up, uh, you know, to midday in the 84 uh, range, and then it ramps back down after that. Um, not using a lot of supplemental heat in my adult room. I have, I think, one rack right now that has a supplemental heat. I keep that heat at about 85 degrees, 85 to 88, depending on the time of the year. Later, when it starts getting colder out, I, I crank it up to about 88 degrees. But that's, that's it. I really don't use supplemental heat. Um, it's, okay. it's not my thing. It doesn't, uh, I don't see any benefit inside of my space for it. Um, I have a couple of the baby racks right now that I'm trying. I'm uh, demoing it out to see if there's a difference. I'm not seeing any. Uh, so... They're when still you, eating, thriving, you know. 
when you're putting the supplemental on the babies, because you know, I know you said you're trying some of that. What temps are you setting? And I'm guessing you have a little bit of a gradient, you know, going on there. 85 degrees. 85 for the babies. Okay. Yeah, in the tub. You know, I'm not. I'm not mm-hmm. putting my probe on the on the actual heat panel itself. Mm-hmm. It's uh, in a empty tub, just uh, right over the heat panel. Gotcha. Very cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I, I do that. It, it works great for me here in Ohio. Now, uh, my business partner Mitch down in Florida, if he does the same thing, uh, he he has problems. You know, he has problems with his snakes wanting to not eat and and things like that. Uh, he has to keep them warmer, so he keeps them 88, 90 degrees down there, and uh, it, it, it's it's a whole different uh, ball game uh, out of South Florida. Um, I also keep light, uh, you know, from the from the time light is a big factor for these guys as far as keeping them eating. Um, I have a lot of people that'll be first time hognose owners that reach out to me and say, "Hey, my hognose snake's not eating." And first thing I say is like, "What's your light cycle?" And they're like, "That blows me away." Like, "What do you mean?" Like, "But the temperature is fine." I'm like, "Yeah, but what's your light cycle? Sixteen hours on, eight hours off. That that works great. <laughs> it te- it tells them it's middle of summer, time mm-hmm. to eat. You gotcha. know." Uh, and if uh, someone is, you know, keeping their first hognose snake or, or, or just learning, uh, they're keeping them next to a window and the days are getting shorter right now. Their snake's saying everything in their minds, telling them not to eat, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, makes sense. That's, that's that's just one of the little tricks that that I use right there. Photo period is very important for these guys. Yeah. Very. Yep. When so I, I was. I, Go for it, Glenn. I was going to say, I learned something new here. Yeah, I, I didn't realize mm-hmm. it was so important for this particular no. species. So. When I was out doing the field work this summer, I was, I mean, I knew that they liked sun and they liked, like, light was an important part of their biology. Platt talks about that in the, uh, the, the, the paper you just mentioned, mm-hmm. which, by the way, you know, we nerd out here with the science piece. That is the hog, that's the heterodon Bible. Um, I have, yes. I have read that. I think at least I, I literally have read that cover to cover 10 times. Every time I go out to do anything field work wise, I'm, I read that whole book and then I go. And one of the things that was really interesting to me, both in Colorado and in Minnesota is that when we finally got on the Nasicus and we were finding them and we found quite a few on both trips this past year, directly correlated to sunshine in Colorado, it would be cloudy like we had partly cloudy conditions, so we would have clouds for a little while, um, and we would walk around the students and I, and we would find them bull snakes, and we were flipping milk snakes, and we would flip nasicus then, you know, under undercover objects, but we weren't seeing them on the crawl. It, the sun would come out, we'd wait about twenty minutes, and it was almost like you could you could literally look at your watch and start thinking somebody's going to find one. It's been twenty minutes, and then sure enough. I got one, and then, you know, 10 minutes later, I got one, and it was, the clouds would roll back in, then, boop, they go right back down under, um, and, and that was, I, I just left those two field trips being like, these are like the worms from Dune. These are not, <laughs> these are not snakes. Like, like, we think about these things completely wrong. Like, I was like, you know, yeah. it was such a wonderfully crazy inter, inter, like relationship between Mm-hmm. Heat, sand, sun, clouds. Like if if you didn't have those three things, you were screwed. If, yep. if you did, you were good. It was it was awesome. You know, and it's amazing. You know, when when I come in here, you know, and it's been an hour after the sun comes up, and you know the heat's uh, ramping up inside the room. 
like these guys are just all over the place. Like mm-hmm. they want to move. Like, yeah. uh, you know, even these little babies inside these tubs, like they're trying to get out. You know, I'm looking all around me right now. They're, they're trying to get out. Like it, it's just amazing, uh, you know, how they move and how. And then if you come in here in the middle of the night, flip on a light, you know, everybody's sleeping. Like you mm-hmm. said, man, once that sun's gone, they, 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 they go away real fast. Yep. Wholeheartedly. Yeah. Well, I love the discussion of light because that 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 matches to a T what I was seeing at, outside. And it yeah. changed the way I kept them here. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I got extra lights, actually, on some of them. And we, and then uh, some of our babies that were being a pain in the ass. And then, boom, feeding rates actually increased a little bit. So that was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, big mm-hmm. time. Uh, that That's helped me out quite a bit. Uh, there is some people actually doing some trials right now with UVB and, mm-hmm. uh, and hognose snakes as well. And just seeing... In a captive environment, and just seeing the the benefits there, and I mean, it, it's a no brainer to me. Like, yeah, if if I could if I could do it, if I had a you know, if I had the ability to do it with this volume of snakes, I would have everything like that, everything yeah. with UVB, everything everything running like that, because it's just such an important part mm-hmm. uh, of reptiles in particular. Yep. So, I same thing. I was out there with my solarometer, and when we would find the snakes. I would sprint. My forty-four-year-old middle-aged ass would be running across the prairie because <laughs> I had to get there within, like, you know, a minute of them because fi- I didn't want anything to shift. Yeah. And I was consistently when we would get them active on the surface using like the scale that's on most solarometers between four point one and six point or sorry eight point one UVB consistently. I, we never got one wow. where we didn't read. UVB. So it was actually kind of high for some yeah, of these no, things. Yeah, that's high. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, it was fantastic. Uh, all right. Well, cool. I, I, I like that you jumped to UVB without us having to prompt it. Uh, yeah, um, no, no yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's actually going to be my very next question because it just, uh, I agree with you. It seems like a no-brainer. If a species is, you know, this into heat as well as this active during the day, it, it almost has to benefit from UVB. Yeah, so I think. A, yeah, I think a lot of reptile keepers take that for granted. You know, uh, you know, we, we've gotten this. You know, I, try, I learn something every year, man. You know, every year I learn something about these guys. It may be something small some years. It may be something big other years. And uh, you know, I think that's something that we can improve on as a community. Is just uh, is just things like that. You know, just little tips and tricks. These are reptiles. You know, they they revolve around the sun. You know, in in a wild environment, so just just little things like that, I think, is uh, could could be amazing for the hobby for sure. Very cool. I agree. Mm-hmm. Well, do we uh, want to move to breeding? We think we're there. Uh, I wanna I wanna talk about feeding first, if that's okay. Uh, ah, yes, 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 yes. Is that what, is sure. that all right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the infamous feeding the toad eating snakes rodents. <laughs> um, now, one thing that's cool is if you actually, you know, do the the deep dive on Nasticus, there are absolutely populations of the snake. Like Nebraska is one where a much larger percentage of their diet are voles, and um, you know they'll 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 get in on a prairie vole nest and eat all the babies, and then some scientist will cut open a pickled. Hognose snake in a museum and see baby after baby after baby. So they, you know, they do eat rodents, 
but other populations are almost entirely feeding off of spadefoot toads, uh, you know, anaxorous toads, all those guys. So, uh, and that's led to some controversy with the diet and, and human care. That's one of the things that I'm going to be diving deep on with the book. And in, in your opinion, though, you know, you're making a lot of them. You've had them for a while. Is it just straightforward rodents? Do you ever have to rely on other things? Do you have the cups of random dead things in the freezer for scenting? Oh, wow, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, he was talking about king snakes earlier, and I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, I know that struggle. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I would say, I mean, I, I just pick up things. Like, I, you know, me and my daughters, we go road cruising, you know, late February here in central Ohio, and it's like amphibian migration up here around uh-huh. us. So I, you know, I, I hate killing anything. So I'll, you know, find uh, road hit American toads and things like that. Grab one and throw it in a freezer. Salamanders, uh, you know, I get uh, commercially produced uh, frog legs, fish mm-hmm. of all types. These th- these guys love fish. Yes, um, they do. <laughs> you know, it's it's just incredible. But I, you know, primarily I feed these guys uh, mice. I I did uh, I do and did play around with the reptilinks. Yep. That are being commercially produced. I think it's a wonderful product. Some of my hogness snakes like them. Some of them don't. I would piggyback, uh, you know, some of those reptilinks, especially with the uh, females that just got done laying eggs, just as a nutrient mm-hmm. boost um, there at the end. But you know, primarily rodents from the get go. You know, the the babies I feed to get them going. I'll, I'll offer about every third day um, until oh, wow. they're until they're consistently uh, eating and then it's three to four days after that um, you know we, we continue the feeding schedule until they probably hit uh, maybe 40 grams and then we start backing that off a little bit you know a lot of these guys when they're That's cool when they, when they hatch you know they're anywhere between three and six grams you know majority of the animals so uh, day, you know day old pinkies from there work really well. Uh, some scenting techniques uh, with some of the things that I, I described, uh, salmon, tuna, uh, sardines are also wonderful, the the frog and toads. If you're getting anything uh, from the wild, though, I'd be very weird about how you oh, handle yeah. that stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, pathogens inside of amphibians are very high, especially in toads, mm-hmm. uh, just, just from what. So when I do get those, I freeze them for a minimum of a year before I even use them. So I'm using the toads that I got last year, if I'm using toad. I, I use it as almost a last resort. Uh, I use commercially produced uh, things like the sardines and salmon and tuna. That's just in a can. We know it's already been pasteurized, cooked. Uh, you know, yep. there, There's no no problems with any pathogens inside of that stuff. Um, so, but I, I feed them rodents, uh, you know, the, the babies, I feed the day olds and I move them up pretty quick, uh, adult females. So appropriate size rodent going all the way up, uh, you know, adult males, I'll feed hoppers, uh, large fuzzies, uh, adult females. I don't go above an adult mouse. Like I don't use like those retired breeder mice or anything like that. I would rather feed them just like you mentioned with the vole. Uh, babies where mm-hmm. a female go in and eat an entire nest. I would rather feed two or three smaller food items than mm-hmm. one large. Um, I do supplement with uh, herptivite and uh, calcium with D3. Um, Interesting. You know, yeah, so mm-hmm. a lot of people say D3 can be toxic, you know, whatever. These guys love it. Um, don't really have a problem with it at all. Um, you know, they're, they're probably synthesizing that with uh with the available light uh but or passing the rest of it and just the urates afterwards but how do you actually add do you just 
like sprinkle powder on the mouse or, or no, do you soak them in it or nope I, so what, nope what, I, I have injected before um, you know just just with some uh, uh, some snakes that were having trouble but um, I, what I'll do is I'll just have a couple three ounce cups full of it and I'll dip the butt of the <laughs> of the mouse inside of it so because they can be really turned off on you know in my collection at least you know i've seen other people that the snakes have gotten used to it uh, jeff galewood's a, a perfect example he he really coats a lot of his mice in uh herptivite and and calcium and you know the snakes take it mine would be like yeah right man i'd probably have like 50 percent <laughs> success rate so i dip the butt in it so they're getting all the nutrients from it and uh and they're not really smelling it when they come up to check out the mouse so, oh, yeah. See, yeah. mine don't mine don't mind it. I do the same thing. I cycle every other feeding or try to with uh, uh, herptivite and calcium, and I'll kind of put them in a tub, a bunch mm-hmm. of frozen thawed, sprinkle mm-hmm. and shake it. It's like shake and bake, baby. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so they're fully coated, you know, and, and yeah. everything. But most of the time, that's going to a lot of like adult colubrids. So as long as you know, if you yes. wiggle in front of them, they're they're fine. Right. So. And I, I mean, I feed everything. Like I feel like the, these guys are spoiled. Like they all get a, a either a piece of a, a paper or a paper towel or something. All their food is being delivered like that inside of their cage. <laughs> uh, every single snake in here. I don't just like uh, throw a mouse in there and they they just eat it. You know, in which I'm sure they could. I'm sure it'd be just fine, especially you know some of the larger animals. But. Uh, you know, I, they they all get delivered on a platter. You know, all their food every time. So, go through a lot of paper towels inside this facility. That's for sure. So, oh. just figure you walking in like the pizza man. You know, it's yeah. just a box, just yeah. opening it up. You know, <laughs> you know and, it, and it's a good marker for me too. You know, if you're leaving off, if you're you know when you're feeding, you know. 600 babies you know aj spends a lot of the time in here uh, the, the kid that works for me uh that that does a lot of work with the babies and it'll give him a spot like he'll he'll know like all right this road doesn't have any paper towels in it i haven't been there yet you know i haven't, yeah. I haven't fed them yet it's kind of a you know a checks and balances to know that you didn't miss a row or, or something along those lines um but yeah that, that that's what i that's what i feed and i i do give them treats um they love fish man they love eggs um, really? I, I scrambled eggs. Uh, they'll they'll mm-hmm. eat the heck out of some scrambled eggs. Well, okay. um, uh, I've tried feeding quail eggs to them. It's real hit and miss. Uh, the rat snakes like them. Some hognose snakes will eat them, but they really have a hard time. I, you know, if if they were like turtle eggs or something, I think they would smash. Oh God! Because yeah. Yeah, 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 you know, because you know, you know, we can talk about it later, but you know, these guys will turn right around and eat their own eggs if you know. Yes, they you will. Don't, mm-hmm. You don't catch them, but yeah, yeah. If, uh, frog legs. I'll feed them uh, some cooked frog legs uh, here and there, just as a treat. Uh, I don't like feeding stuff uh, that sort of thing unless they're like the garbage disposal status, which usually after about a year and a half they do. Cause I would really hate to have a snake that will only eat frog legs. You know, mm-hmm. it wouldn't really be a big deal, but uh, if I had like two racks of them, that that's all they would eat, you know, <laughs> it would be a problem. So very, very cool. So with the babies, is there a standard protocol? Like, all right, they have hatched. They, they usually just shed right away. So, you mm-hmm. know, like how many days post hatch uh, are are you offering your first food, and then what do you do to to get them 
eating, or do you normally just they just eat and we move on? <laughs> I would say sixty percent, seventy percent. It's a it, every year. It's a little different. I, you know, we we keep wonderful Excel documents uh, that, that tracks everything. You know, they like I everything's ID tagged, and you know we we track exactly when each one eats the date that the, the first offering and it's very clutch specific like uh you know i have some clutches where everything will eat uh unscented frozen thawed right off the get-go and then the clutch that hatched right next to it you know or you the you know a couple days later you know nothing will eat maybe like one out of 20 mm. wheat you know unscented frozen thawed uh from the get-go and then you know the rest of them will only eat sardine or, you know, or something along those lines. So I usually wait about three to seven days after they come out of the egg to offer their first one, uh, first feedings. I keep them in very small, like half quart containers, um, Hmm. just to get them started. Uh, you know, these guys can't see it, but, uh, let me me grab one real quick. Just so you can kind of see it. So I'll start them out in something like this. Um, okay, you know, it's about the size Ouch. of my yeah. hand, you know. And and I'll get these. I'll get them to eat like once or twice in this, and then they go straight into this uh, into this FB five tub. Uh, that's just so they don't get stressed out, and uh, you know it gives them an opportunity to be close to the food. A lot of people use deli cups as well. They'll offer you know their snakes in a you know an eight ounce deli cup uh, to to get them started. Um, you know, but the, but there's other people that you know do other things. I mean, I have uh, some friends, Jeff Galewood, Eslin Jimenez. Uh, you know, they, they uh, will community feed their uh, hognose snakes for um, for the first feedings, and they do great. I'm not saying they do it all the time, but uh, you know, it, it works that way. My method is categorize everything, give it an ID number, offer it food three to seven days afterwards. So, huh. nice. and then for, I was going to say real quick uh, for our listeners. <laughs> Uh, to describe the tub that oh. he just showed us, um, if you are familiar at all with PM Herps, mm-hmm. uh, they make racks. And is that where you got that tub? That's exactly where that's they're I from. Knew, I yep. knew that's what it was. Yep. Yeah, I yep. have, I think, uh, six, ten, something, I don't know. I've got a bunch of those racks, and I, I <laughs> love that size. For baby colubrids, especially, you know, hatching, it's not too small, not too big. That's about just perfect. Um, So, yeah, PM Herps, and if you want to have an idea on what that tub looks like, if you go to them, you can look at those racks, and uh, you'll see what it is John was referring to. Yeah, I I would say it's, uh, what, six inches by five inches by maybe two and a half, two and a half inches tall, maybe something like that. That's that's about about what it is, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, I love them. You know, it's it's awesome. But I try to get them out of there quick, um, just because moving them into the FB five tub, they they grow faster inside yeah. of there. It's very restrictive inside of this tub um, for for a small colubrid. But uh, I use that, and so so yeah, that's that's where that's at. And, and so, if they don't eat, do you have like a? Then we go to tuna. Then we go to the. Like, is there a, yep. a, a hierarchy of scents, or is it just? Uh, it, it changes every year, man. You know that's that's <laughs> what's uh, incredible. You know, I can have the same pairing, you know, going on, and you know, year one, 
if they're taking scented, they all want sardine. Like they just attack it. You know, <laughs> they'll turn their nose up to a frozen thaw. Do you, you put a sardine uh, dipped pinky in front of them and they just attack it. Then year two, you're like, all right, sardines, the one you go in, they don't even, they just turn their nose up to it literally. And, uh, you know, and then they're like, well, I want albacore tuna this year, you know? So, uh, it, it, you know, I, I go through the gauntlet, you know, it's probably like seven different, uh, scents that we finally use. And I, I tell you what really works well. Like, uh, we'll, we'll have some that will be like, nope, I don't want to eat any of those scents live pinkies. It's the whole reason I breed rodents. Um, okay. A live pinky is something that these guys, if you're having a, a problem uh, hatchling, they rarely turn those down. Um, it's the movement. It's the movement. Yep. Um, you know, we can do what we can with some feeding tongs to try and <laughs> not intimidate a hognose snake that will want to play dead. You know, it's, mm-hmm. these little guys can be intimidated pretty pretty easily when they're babies. Um but that movement of a pinky just turns it, it flips a little uh, light switch in their brain and says, "Hey, it's time to eat." Um, I've fed them, uh, you know, fresh metamorphosis toads before when I was early in mm-hmm. uh, in in keeping hognose snakes. Had some decent success, and it was similar similar thing. They would not touch anything, but the the little toad hopping. Um, definitely triggered something inside their brain, and mm-hmm. it, it said, "Hey, this is this is what I'm supposed to be eating right here." Uh, like I said before, that's they're they're terrible uh, prey items for captive individuals, uh, mm-hmm. you know, live amphibians. But um, you know, that's what that's what uh, you know we used you know when we first got into this. So yeah, you know, very but, very cool. So. Man, so do you have well, what's your go to? Is it sardines? Is sardine. It, sardine, sardine, yeah, sardine. I, I, I like it. I, I, I bat real good with that one. Um, you know, I get a lot of success. Uh, but like I said, it changes sometimes year to year. But that's my one that I'm like, all right, let's try sardine first. It just stinks. Okay. It know, does you open stink. up a can of sardines, <laughs> you're like, whoa, you know, it could be anything else, tuna or salmon or something like that. It doesn't smell as bad as sardines. And, you know, are they in water or oil? Yeah. All in water. Yeah. So, so if you guys do get something like this, make sure it's in water. You don't want to, you don't want to feed your snake something with oil for sure. So, uh, yeah, just water and, uh, it works great. You know, you can pour off the water and just use the water. You can dip it straight into the meat itself. So is um, the sorry, but this is the stuff that that I like to dig in on because mm-hmm. I suck at getting baby snakes to eat. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so no, the no, more, yeah. The more like specifics, the better. So is it? You grab the ba- the, the pinkies in the forceps. We're, we're dipping and then presenting, or is it just chuck it in the water and marinate? Go go one step further or one step back before you even answer that. So we're I'm taking it frozen thawed. Yes. Do you yeah. do you wash them first? Yeah, Are there these we go. boiled? Are they? I mean, so that I, I want from the moment you pulled it out of the freezer. What yeah. do you do? <laughs> there you go. Okay, very very good. <laughs> I I I, uh, I was in the food industry for a long time. Uh, you know, twenty two years. So I'm weird about just pulling rodents out and setting them on the counter to thaw. Uh, we always okay. put them in the a refrigerator, let mm-hmm. them thaw out in the refrigerator, and then move them into the space. Once you know they can get like. 
not warm, but you know they start to yeah. get that chill out of the refrigerator, and then we feed them in like right then and there. Like we stage them. It's not like we pull out a thousand rodents, let them sit because when you get to nine hundred, they've been sitting out, you know, for you know I don't know two hours or something like that. I don't like that. Uh, okay. So I pull them out, let them thaw um, just in the bag, uh, whatever okay. you know rodent company you use. I let them thaw in that. I take the rodent out and then I dip it into the juice and present dip it to it. the present gotcha. it to the the hatchling. Um, I have not tried washing, heard it works. Um, have not tried boiling, heard it works. Um, I just yeah. do what what works for me, and you know that that works. So uh, that that's what I do and. Man, it's it's. There's been a lot of nights, you know. I'll be out here uh, feeding baby snakes, and you know, you get that one that you've been trying. That all of a sudden, his head snaps in a little different way, and he wants to eat, you know. And like, you hold your breath when he grabs <laughs> yeah. that pinky, and you're like, I don't blink because uh, you know mm-hmm. he will let go of the pinky and you know crawl to the back of the tub, and then you want to scream and throw your you know forceps mm-hmm. down, but. Uh, yeah, you know that that's what I do and you know just be patient. You know, keeping these guys hydrated is uh is the biggest thing especially if you're having stubborn feeders. Um I've had them go until brumation time, you know, and not eat and then eat once they wake up. You know, okay. so mm-hmm. so that is that is something I do. You know, I brumate, you know, everything every year, even you know a uh, a 6 gram baby. It goes through 10 weeks. And, uh, you know, it, it gets nice and cold. And a lot of those problem feeders will really turn on after that. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Well, well, thank you for putting up with us <laughs> badgering the hell out of that one. But I, oh, no, I no. I, the, like that, that's the that's the questions that people don't ask. And people, you know, they'll yeah. come to me and they'll be like, I don't want to bother you with a stupid question, John. And I'm like, there's never a stupid question like that. That's a, a stupid statement more than anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I love educating, you know, people on this stuff and, you know, getting into the details because, man, you know, if you don't ask or, you know, learn from my mistakes. Like I've, I've made enough mm-hmm. of them, you know, through, throughout keeping snakes for these years. Learn from me, man. Like I'm an open book mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's something that I, I love just telling people all about them. So, yeah, it, cool. it's you know, and I, I think that sometimes for those of us who have done this so long, we sometimes we forget how to someone who's never done some of these steps before. It, it's you know like for boiling, for example. It's okay, you know. Yeah, many people have heard about the boiled trick, but how long do you boil it? Uh-huh. Do you boil it frozen? Do you boil it thawed? Do you you know what I mean? All this you know these little nuances of it, and so I just think that yeah, when we can actually step back and walk step by step that's where it really starts to to benefit people uh that are listening um because again you know i wanted to know do you wash it first do you not you know Mm -hmm. all those little steps because when it comes especially when it comes to scenting i mean there's right now you know the lamp propeltus yeah scent with lizards how you know what (laughs) yeah exactly i'm just rubbing it and then you know exactly how does everybody Mm -hmm. do this um so I think that that's uh, incredibly important for us to be able to break down. So no, and this, and cool the, you know, and you know, scent with fish, just like you said, scent with lizards. There might be a western fence lizard. There might be you know a green anole versus a brown anole brown, that works yeah. better. Uh-huh. You know, what I mean, it's 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 very good to really dissect that and and be like, you know, these are the things that have worked for me. You know, and then that way, that person that's. Uh, 
just getting into the hobby and wants to breed hognose snakes or wants to breed gray banded king snakes, man, learn from our mistakes. Yeah. You know, they, they, you know, we had to figure it out. You know, and uh, you know, shoot, let's let's fast forward this so you can be successful and not be Absolutely. discouraged. I think a lot of people get discouraged, to, you know, especially with the the western hognose snakes. You know, maybe even the gray bands. You know, they they run into a a roadblock of some type, and it can be discouraging. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, sometimes you just gotta put your nose to the grindstone, figure it out, and just move forward. So, I agree a hundred percent. Takes mm-hmm. a bunch of grit mm-hmm. <laughs> and falling on your head and then oh, get back yeah. up again. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know that that's that's pretty much it with the feeding. Like I said, uh, I like to feed the babies every three to four days. Uh, adult males, I'll feed every seven to ten days. Um, adult females during breeding season, I feed every three to four days heavily supplemented mice uh, just so they can form their uh, shells on their eggs properly and rebound um, mm-hmm. after laying eggs. These guys look double clutch like nobody's business. Um, yes. You know, yeah. Something I Go wanted to, to ask, because it's not, it's kind of a train of thought for me and, and something I've noticed in other colubrids. And, and, uh, so your females... You said mice, and you know we talked about smaller meals and more frequent. Are these adult mice that you're feeding? I'm feeding small adult mice, small, primarily. But still fairly adult. And the reason yes. I ask is because one of the things that I think is a potential mistake for a lot of colubrid species out there when it comes to breeding season and females, we like to have some weight on the females, you know, going in obviously because of how taxing this is, you know, on their body. And for those that can take, let's say, rat pups, I know a lot of individuals will move to rat pups because they're a fattier food. You know, it's going to put weight on. However, I think it's actually, in my experience, it's caused some issues when it comes to egg development because they're not getting the calcium that they get out of an adult mouse, you know, compared as, you know, with the calorie intake compared to what they get out of a, um, you know, a rat pup. So, yes, it's more calories with a similar size meal, but there's not as much bone density. Correct. Know, and so they don't get the calcium out of it. So when you said that and, you know, heavily supplemented, you know, that's I, I just wanted to see if our, if we were on the same kind of train of thought when it came to that. 100%. Yeah, and you're, and you're right. Like the, the bone density and the formation of a, a rat pup is still developing. Mm-hmm. versus an adult mouse that is fully developed and, you know, its its bones are being broke down and, you know, uh, being made into available calcium for the snake. So, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And that, that's something that I have tried. I have tried feeding uh, rats and seeing how it, uh, how it benefited if it did anything with hognose snakes. I, if anything, I think it did something detrimental to them um, yeah you know yeah. just uh just as far as nutrient nutrient uh intake for the animal so yeah for me it's kind of a you know if i have a an animal whether it's male or female that is underweight that's where i start throwing some rat pups in there you know mixing mm-hmm. it in so they get those higher calories but when it comes to egg production i i'm i agree i, I just think an adult mouse is a much better food uh source than than a fatty rat you know when it comes to yep the egg development so all right interesting absolutely good deal i remember reading when i was doing the initial research for the book 
I was all over the old King Snake forum, KingSnake.com forum, which is it's kind of fun to read. It's yeah. gold, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's fun to read that <laughs> yeah. and then think about where we are now, and that's one of the things yeah. I like to, to do, especially with the writing piece. But um, I, I distinctly remember there being some pretty heated conversations in the Hognos community back then about under no circumstance do you feed rat anything to a Hognos snake. Is, is that still a, a thing, or is that not a thing? No, or, I mean, I don't just, do it, you know, but, you know... I I don't think these guys are garbage disposals. Like I really yeah. feel like they they'd eat you know dead carrion off a road. Uh, mm-hmm. They probably do often, honestly. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I wouldn't get as heavy line in the sand, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't make it a primary diet. Um, yeah, you know, to, to give them a treat here and there. I don't know though. I mean, I have uh, you know some. Some very uh, interesting sized animals that you know will eat baby chickens. Um, <laughs> you know some hognose snakes that are just enormous, and uh, it's you know I, that's what I feed them. You know about every third or fourth meal they get a rodent. You know, but the rest of the time mm-hmm. they're eating chicks. That's so, cool. Yeah, well, but chicks aren't super fatty. You know, so no. I think that's a that's a Mm-mm. good one. I like mixing that in with the rat snakes. You know, yes, mm-hmm. because you you don't get to give a whole lot of variety to snakes. Not all, right? Yeah, you know, right. right. So if it's one that it, you're able to, and you don't have to worry about them just wanting frog legs for the rest of their lives, then uh, you know, then absolutely, <laughs> I'm all for that. Yep, I, I switch those in there to certain ones that will take them and uh, and do give uh, you know day old, uh, two day old chicks mm-hmm. to the hognose snakes, rat snakes, you know, all those guys. So very cool. All right, Clint, you brought it up initially. You you want to jump into the breeding of these guys yeah yeah i want to hear you know kind of the cycle i want to hear well i guess first let's go cycle i'll ask you more of your thought process whenever you mm-hmm. you've got this many on what's going to be paired with what but uh if you can walk us through what that looks like so for those at home who want to put their toes in the pond here yeah uh, no absolutely how they go about it I love uh, brumating uh everything yeah so so uh <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna start from you know, we're really going to dissect this one. Uh, so it starts for me with uh, the babies I just hatched. Um, okay. I, I go ahead and get those feeding well, and then uh, start about the second week of November. I'll, I'll start uh, ramping down uh, the temperature and light cycle inside this room over a seven-day period. Uh, I brumate the entire facility, um, but I really feel like it does something to these uh, baby snakes starting them out with a brumation first year it really really preps especially the females to be better breeders later on hmm. um when i wake all of them up uh it it there's got to be like a chemical or something that happens in their brain uh you know in, in the <laughs> wild you know as well mm-hmm. that it releases it says it is springtime it is time to eat you know and uh so so these guys like i stated before some stubborn babies will uh, will really turn on after a brumation period. It's the same with the ones that did great, you know, going into brumation as well. They just turn into better uh, breeding animals once they get to that adult size. I don't use like a like all right. It needs to be two years, two hundred grams, you know, yeah. uh, for for breeding hognose snakes. I go with a look. I really like to uh, not breed my females till they're at least three. 
I feel okay. like they rebound better. Um, you get bigger clutches. Um, you can rush uh, these guys mm-hmm. into getting to size, but it really has detrimental effect on the animal. Um, you're going to get smaller clutch sizes. Egg binding is more of a thing uh, with, with the hognose snakes, uh, especially when they're young. And, you know, they, they don't rebound well. So if you rush to a project or you ru- you're rushing to breed uh, your hognose snakes, long term, if you were to wait that extra year, you would not only produce more uh, babies, um, but, but you would probably save your female. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I see a lot of people that breed uh, – very young animals and consistently after that it's a six to ten egg clutch i i breed mine until they're three or four i have uh, first year females laying 20 25 eggs first clutch similar second clutch so i mean i'm getting 50 eggs from you know first year females sometimes uh, during breeding season so i'm very selective on which ones you know i i I, you know push to do uh those numbers with but um you know, it, it's incredible just the extra year, what it can do for the animal. Whereas you would uh, have two years, you know, of getting, you know, 24 to 30 eggs or you could wait that extra year and one year, you know, almost double your, your production rate at that point in time mm-hmm. and have a female that rebounds better. Um, so, all right, I, I, I segued on to a different topic there. But, um, you know, starting about the second week in November, I start bringing temperatures down and light cycle back. Um and I let it get cold. I, I unplug everything. And we're here in Central Ohio. It's not much different than wheeling down there. Yeah. It gets cold. Mm-hmm. gets cold pretty quick. So I like to brewmate for a minimum of 10 weeks. Um, it it just uh, – it. I think it's most important for cycling your females and for uh, male for sperm production mm-hmm. uh, for that amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do that. I, I give them about a, a, you know 10 weeks of uh, brumation, and I let it get cold. Um, I know a lot of people are scared to get, you know, sub 50. Um, you know, every year I have ice in my water bowls, you know, since really? I'm bringing, since I'm, since I'm cooling the whole facility, they don't have to move. I don't have to put them in a, you know, a wine cooler or something mm-hmm. like that. I can just brewmate them in the tubs that they live in. And, uh, you know, I, so I provide water, you know, every, everything is still uh, provided. So if they need a drink or anything, but it gets cold. And, you know, last year we had some temperatures there. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, negative 37 up here. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was cold inside of these reptile rooms. Hey, it wasn't that cold. Like, I, I definitely, in the main <laughs> main area, I had uh, the heat rocking, so it, it wouldn't, like, get, you know, zero inside the rooms. But uh, it got down to, you know, 29, 30 degrees, and there was, uh, wow. there was, there was ice in the water bowls. Did not lose a single snake. Wow. You know, n- nothing. Yeah. Not a single hognose snake, not a rosy boa, not a corn snake, nothing. And uh, they, they really benefit from that. So, um, you know, after the 10-week uh, period, uh, okay, during during the brumation time, I do have all lights off. So that 16 hours on, 8 hours off, it's, it's no longer there. Um, but what they are getting is natural light cycle from the, from the outside. So I have uh, windows inside of each one of my uh, snake rooms. So they're seeing the natural cycle. You know, they're seeing that, you know, it's, I don't know what it is at that point in time, maybe eight hours, nine hours of light a day. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, very, it's very short. So they're seeing that. And, you know, to go back to photo period, it's very important during brumation to, you know, have that photo period as well. If it's, if it's um, not completely blacked out. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you can definitely put these guys, because they're not brumating above ground. They're in the ground, so it's going to be dark. But all my snakes are exposed to that light, light cycle, at least, um, so they can okay. understand what's going on outside. So uh, I do that. Uh, and then after the 10-week the period, they go through that rest. I change water bowls about every third week. I try not to disturb the snakes, because, man, you know, hognose snakes in particular, they're very defensive. And man, they know that they are vulnerable. They know, you know, you mm-hmm. you slide open a tub and you'll have a snake that is very, very easy to work with, and it will flatten out, spread out, and just hiss at you because it knows right now is the time that it can get killed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I try to leave them alone and have ven- very minimal interaction with them at that point in time. And then I go right into it uh, since. Since the facility, you know, concrete floors, uh, insulated walls, it takes a while for it to cool down. So it'll take seven to ten days for it to get, you know, to that low temperature. And then it has the natural fluctuations uh, with mm-hmm. whatever's going on outside. But it stays relatively cold, you know. Um, even if you have a day that's 60 degrees in January, you know, it's still going to probably be like 45 inside the, inside the room. But, you know, it has that natural wave, yeah. you know, that comes with the season. Um and on the other side, when I go to warm them up after brumation, it's not like I flip on the, the heat and it's warm inside the room. It takes like seven, ten days for the concrete floor to heat up, uh, everything like that. So they're getting that nice slow ramp up and ramp down uh, during the brumation time. Um, usually takes, you know, two to three weeks to get everybody eaten when they first wake up. You know, you probably have a... I don't know, cool. maybe a twenty percent success rate on uh, on feeding your adult animals. You know, they're they're a little groggy still, but it, you know, it drastically goes up over the next couple weeks, and I, I begin pairing immediately. Um, Imme- you know, All right, it, cool. So, so you don't wait w- for sheds, anything. You just no, you go. no, yeah. I mean, you know, the, honestly. It, in the wild, I, I feel like they're you know they're they're not they're coming out of their dens. They're not waiting to shed. They're not waiting to eat to start breeding. It's it's definitely you know procreate. That's it. Yep. You know so uh, especially some of the northern varieties. You know they're 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 really that's that's what they got to do or else they're not going to be able to reproduce. Um, so I, I immediately pair and, and that can really have an influence on uh, the females um, starting to eat. Once the males really start breeding them, uh, it tells her to ovulate. Um, they're normally not ovulating straight out of brumation, but the male courting and breeding is telling her to ovulate, and it is making her appetite go through the roof. <laughs> so, uh, you, you know, it's like two birds, one stone. Um, you, you know, you're breeding your animals and you're, you know, enticing them to eat. Um so I put them together, and I, I keep pairing them. I, I do ro- I rotate my males. If I'm using a single male on multiple females, um, I will rotate uh, that male um, about every three days between the females uh, that I'm doing. And then when it's feed time, I give him that two-day break, uh, let him eat, and then he's right back to work. And I continue to pair until I get eggs. Um, okay. That was my then, next question. Yep, until I get eggs. Um, I would. I, you know, you get better fertility that way instead of being like, I saw a lock, they're done. You know, that doesn't always mean they got the job done. You know, uh, I, I let them keep breeding and I do not repair for second clutches. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I get damn near 100% fertility still on second clutches. Um, yeah. I have a quick question mm-hmm. about locks. So mm-hmm. I've, I've 
had three or four breeding seasons, and I don't, you know, I'm breeding to get animals here at the school, and I'm trying to get about 50 to 80 so we have enough to do some experiments and, and have lots of replication. Uh, and hognose snakes, the, they did it to me this year. They drive me crazy because I, I look in the tub. Male is doing everything, herky-jerky dance, trying to lock. I think I saw maybe two locks. I saw s- tremendous amounts of breeding behavior. I just didn't see locks. Do you see locks? I see you- like I see like 10% of my locks. All right, that's what yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. 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 They're sneaky. Some guys will get drug <laughs> some guys will get drug around the cage by the female and some guy you're like never even shown any activity or anything mm-hmm. like that, but you know, and then, you know, I'm very specific. Like, I won't, like, repair a female with another male. Like, I'm very calculated on what mm-hmm. males are going with what females and things. And there is not another male that goes in there. And those females lay perfect clutches. And okay. it's everything. The results are what they are supposed to be. And, yeah, so that, uh, that's, you know. That's something I want somebody that's listening to this, and it's the first time they're trying to breed. I, I want you to understand that if the male is showing breeding activity... You know, it's great to see the lock, um, but just because you see the lock doesn't mean that that's the lock. But if if you're seeing activity, that's a really good indication that you will probably I, I like the word probably get a clutch if everything works out. Because I had to just keep telling myself because, you know, a kid's master's degree is dependent on these things <laughs> reproducing. No pressure. Yeah. And I brought him to my house. Um uh, there's too much going on here with the the school. I, I did learn that if they if you set up the breeding if you try to breed them with a lot of human activity, there's like a tipping point where they're like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that because right. the year before this year, I just thought, you know, this is easy. We're just going to breed them at school, and I think I got one clutch. I mean, it was dramatic. How, what kind of impact all that humanity around them had? They were oh, yeah. shy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, but no, I didn't see. I don't actually think I saw a lock this year. Uh, and then they didn't show gravidity until they showed gravidity, if that makes sense. And then I was like, oh, oh well, yeah. I guess all of them are gravid. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that's why I keep pairing until I see eggs. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because you never know. And, I mean, with, with uh, my cycles, it, everything is very predictable, you know, as yeah. far as when I'm going to get eggs and things like that. And it is like... It rains eggs. Like I tell people, you know, it, it's it happens and then it's done, you know, and and there's no more like, all right, well, I'm just getting a clutch and it's like August. No, it, it's all been done. You know, it's it, that that's the benefit, I think, of brumation and and just uh, timing everything, because there there are people out there that don't brumate. You know, yep. and, uh, you know, they just use light cycle and shed cycles and things and, and, and they are successful, but being able to predict and know, you know, is, yep. is very important to me. So that, that's, uh, that's why I do it the way I yep. do it. And, you know, it, it just works R- really fast. Just so the listeners hear the date, because there's going to be some people that can't do math like me. T- 10 weeks from the second week of November would be like around what time are you pulling them out? I like, you know, mid-January, you know, it, it all okay. kind of depends, you know, because like I said, the ramp down period, sometimes I don't even count, 
You know, I, yeah. I count like when when everything's cold and then, you know, on the other end, you know, the same thing, you know, when it's ramping up, I don't even count that. So, you know, typically, typically, you know, I love to be uh, breeding by February 1st. OK, um, you know, you, you guys talk about you guys talk about Tenley. My my mm-hmm. show's Daytona. Daytona, I, you know, Tenley Park's oh, yeah. tough. Tenley Park's tough for uh, hog nose snakes, not because you can't get them in there, but because of the law there yeah. uh, with the permitting. You know, you can't sell to anybody there in the state without a uh, proper permits and things. And you know, so my Tenley Park is Daytona, and makes sense. You know, I, I, yeah. I love it down there. So, so, yeah. so I have more of a personal question for you, John, because if I'm sure. remembering right, well, first you said that you brewmate everything, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then you also said that you went full time on this now this past February, correct? <laughs> correct. Mm-hmm. So what the hell are you going to do with yourself for ten weeks, John? <laughs> I think I'm going to learn like draw or something. You know, you know, <laughs> you know that that is something. I you know I know my wife has a nice list for me. Um, mm-hmm. You know she she she's got that ready to rock and roll. Uh, no, I, I mean I got I got other things that I'm working on. You know. I, I really want to become a bigger part of this community and offer things to people that more than just snakes. So uh, you spoke about a book. I'd love to write a book or, you know, Mm -hmm. work on some chapters for one. It'd probably take me forever um, to to actually write a book. But, uh, you know, I've got a lot of I've got a lot of knowledge for these and I'd like to share it with more people um, to to just get that information out there. I got some learning to do, too. I mean, uh, you know, these Japanese rat snakes, I want to breed those things and be successful. I got some learning to do. I've never done it. So I mm-hmm. want to, you know, check that box. So, uh, you know, I've got some wonderful books that I can uh, that I can read. I, I Now that I've got more free time, uh, I've definitely been reading more books. Uh, you know, it's, I don't know, 10 weeks. Like, like you said, man, I don't know. This is going to be my first <laughs> one. You know, this last time, you know, I... I was leaving my job like right in the middle of breeding and it was like pure chaos. You know, I was like (laughs) trying to wrap everything up with my career and, uh, you know, and breed snakes and take, you know, lots of lots of notes and data. And, you know, it was just uh, it was a whirlwind. So, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting. And I make I may do some herping, you know, uh, during those 10 weeks. I'd like to, you know, possibly go to southern Florida and find a Burmese python. Yeah, there you uh, go. You know, nice. I, and, I, and I mean, not to not to make a joke out of it. I mean, it it, it would be interesting to see one of those in the wild. Oh, absolutely. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think they're terrible for the environment down there, obviously. But uh, and they need to do what they're doing with them. Uh, but to catch a you know eight plus foot uh, Burmese python in the United States would be you know that'd be fun. You know, I completely get it. I was just asked by a uh, a guy I went to school with, you know, for years and years. Him and his family were here in the shop, uh, I think Saturday, and he, you know, he asked, "So, what's your favorite snake? What's your favorite species of snake? Or what's that snake that you really want?" And I'm like, "You know, I have to be honest with you. At this point, there's really not a a pinnacle snake anymore." I said, "What is really exciting for me when it comes to snakes?" are finding different species out in the wild. Uh-huh. It's getting to see, even if it just, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I say it all the time about the tin that's behind the building and flipping it just to find eastern black king snakes that I've been finding all my life. I am so much more interested in seeing that now than yep. really having, than possessing anything. 
You know, yes. so I can fully understand why that has an allure for you. You know. It's, oh yeah, yeah, it, oh, yeah. It's every time Zach says something about going, you know, in the field to go look for this. I'm like, ask me, ask me. Yeah. <laughs> well, now I know. <laughs> so, so I, I'm good friends with uh, John Kitzmaner. Uh, he, he's a book guy. He, he does a lot of stuff with uh, rattlesnakes. Uh, and he he uh, he vends down next to me in Daytona. We've been doing it now for I don't know six or seven years next to each other. But um, my thing that I want to find is I want to find Crotalus horridus here in Ohio. Yeah, like not don't go to PA where you know you can find you know yep. dens and things like that. I want to find one in Ohio. So I've been searching this uh, this last year. When I first uh, left my job, that was one thing I went out in the field and was really. Really climbing a lot of hills, probably too early for, to even find a snake. But uh, you know, I want to find a timber rattlesnake in Ohio yeah. and just experience it, and you know, take lots of pictures and you know, get that get that heart pumping for a minute to just uh, see something yeah. as impressive as that. So, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah very absolutely. cool. Yeah, absolutely. Damn. Well, uh, yeah. So yeah, to touch on some other. So I spoke on cleaning. Um, with having this many snakes, scrubbing tubs <laughs> is, you know, a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was in operations for a while, and I, I have dishwashers that do everything for me. Not like really? physical people, but I have inline dishwashers um, that clean all my tubs. Um, they sanitize everything. It gets to 180 degrees. They're all that NFT or NST uh, rated uh, dishwashers, and you know it, they're like five full time employees that uh, are just cleaning tubs uh, twenty four hours a day sometimes, um, which is which has made the workload and the ability to care for the snakes themselves very possible with a collection this size. So very interesting. How large of a tub are you able to fit in there? Uh, I'm FB20. So what is that? Like it's a 28, 32 quart size tub. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can fit that in there. No problem. So that's, that's something that I, that I do. And with, uh, these FB fives, like I can, uh, I can per cycle, I can run 90 at a time. So it makes it to where you can complete other tasks like feeding or mm-hmm. data yeah. logging or anything like that, or, uh, you know, touching base with customers. You know, that's, uh, that's something that it frees up a lot of time instead of breaking back, uh, scrubbing tubs and wondering if you hit that inside lip, you know, good yeah. enough to, to clean it mm-hmm. right or anything like that. Like these things are coming out and they're hitting 180 degrees for an amount of time that just, I mean, if there was any pathogen inside of these things, it wipes it clean. So, uh, yeah, that's that's been a big asset for me. Um, is this just like a, a normal dishwasher, or is this an yep. industrial? Nope, that's a normal one. Uh, you know, you got to have contact time for a lot of things out there. Yeah. You know, it, so a lot of the commercial use heat and uh, chemical uh, mm-hmm. to, to run those through, but the contact time is not long enough to to really do what we want it to do. Um, so I use just regular ones that you go to Lowe's and get. I mean, I, I think I paid like 320 bucks for these uh, dishwashers. But, uh, man, I tell you what, they've been working now for me for a couple years. And they're just uh, – it's just amazing what can get done with those. Sweet. Nice. 
Nice. Yeah. So you got, you got my brain. Yeah. yeah, I saw yeah. it going. <laughs> yeah. How big a tub can you get? In? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean the the amount of these. I mean I know you guys can't see it, but the PM oh, herbs yes. things. I yes. mean you you just blow through it. So I have two of everything essentially. You know, mm-hmm. so if I have you know a thousand slots for these PM herb tubs, I got two thousand tubs. Right. So I have clean ones to just work right out of whenever I need them. So mm-hmm. uh, very cool. Yeah, so that, that's, yeah. that's that. last last thing I want to uh, hit on real quick uh-huh. is eggs and incubation. Okay. Yeah, is that cool? I think oh, we've actually yeah. done the clinic that I wanted. This has been amazing. Yeah, this yeah, has been great. this has been a really great. good one. No, um, a- eggs and incubation. So, like I said earlier, hognose snakes love eating reptile eggs. Yeah. So, so uh, just just making sure you're on top of that. Watch your sheds on your females. They're going to shed, you know, one to ten days before they lay their eggs. You know, and uh, just so just be aware of that. Um, you know, I, I like I said, I keep that uh, moist cocoa core inside of a tub, uh, inside of their tub, and they crawl in there and they deposit their eggs. Sometimes uh, they'll lay eggs as slow as one to every hour or two. Or they'll lay all twenty eggs in one hour, so um, that that usually works well. Um, I set them up in disposable food containers. Um, I just put moist coca core in there. I I candle the eggs, put the embryo at the top. So I yep. use the back of my phone, turn it on, mm-hmm. put a glove over the top of or over my phone, um, put the egg, put the embryo at the top, set it embryo side up. And uh, then I go back after I've put all the eggs separate from each other inside of there, and I put moist cocoa core on top. I actually bury the eggs. Oh, and, okay. Yep, yep. So that's my method that I use. It actually, if there's any sweating inside huh. of that container, and the water droplets drop onto the eggs, that can have detrimental effect to reptile eggs. Um, so it actually is like a sponge on top of all those eggs, and it kind of in- insulates and protects them uh, from getting uh, hit by water um so i incubate them anywhere between 78 and 82 degrees Uh, this year i did a little bit colder to see if i could get some sex uh sex determination out of there it didn't work Um, (laughs) so so it it was still pretty average at first i was like ah, i finally got more females on these first two clutches and then everything balanced out pretty quickly afterwards but um yeah yeah, i incubate uh them for uh, about 63 days. Um, like, yep. like I said, uh, um, the northern varieties of pure Montana stuff, the sables, will hatch seven days earlier than something from Texas, which, is, really uh, cool. which is very interesting to me. Um, you know, and I still have sable stuff. I've been working with the sable gene since its infancy, and uh, it's, it's still... Uh, I still have some that hatch quite a, quite a bit earlier, even though I've mixed them in with all the new color mutations and things like that. But yeah, uh, let it, let it do that, let it ride, and uh, you know those guys pip, and usually they, it, it may take anywhere between one and six days for everything yep. to come out of the eggs. You know, it's it's not like uh, they just explode out of the egg, and you know everybody's everybody's out. Hognose snakes like to take their time, and sometimes you know they just like to sit in their egg with just their head out, and they're fully content right there like that. So very very cool. Yeah, absolutely. I love the burying. So, what, is there a medium that they're going 
on like are you using perlite vermiculite then burying it or is it just whole things cocoa core cocoa core cocoa core oh. in the nest box cocoa core in the egg box in the and is egg it that containers damp consistency yeah yep. so, we share a brain my friend <laughs> because i this summer i did hand-to-hand combat with perlite in my garage i kept and it was it was this is this has nothing to do with science my it was me being a klutz and i kept spilling the perlite i bought like a huge bin of it and that crap goes everywhere when it oh, you know, oh yeah and i i was standing there and i was like okay this is ridiculous you know what can I use that that won't happen with? And I had, um, I think it was Repti Chip, uh, the the chunk mm-hmm. uh, coconut substrate. Mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking about it. And I was like, well, this is antimicrobial, um, mm-hmm. naturally, uh, and it's going to definitely hold moisture, and it's a hell of a lot cheaper. And I don't hate it because <laughs> I hated the perlite. Yes. So, about halfway through my season, I just started quite literally taking the subs the, the snake substrate, chucking it in my bins, and I had a hundred percent. Yeah, patch rate. It, work, it works and, great. Yeah, yeah. And very little biofouling. That was the thing that I thought was really cool. Is like the mold. I, I didn't get like lots of mold. I don't want people to think that, but I didn't have any moldy eggs in in those bins compared to the one or two moldy eggs maybe every third clutch in in the perlite bins. So there was mm-hmm. there was something. To, but next season, the perlite's gone. The vermiculite's gone. Everything's mm-hmm. just going on the rep chip. So yeah, that's like, I tell cool. you what, it, it works great, and uh, you know, disposal. You know, it, it's easier to dispose. Uh, everything about it works great, man. Like, like I said, I bury the eggs and the antimicrobial aspect of it. If there's a dead egg in there, it's gonna mold, but yeah. it doesn't affect the egg right next to it if it's alive. Like, it, it, I've mm-hmm. I've had you know half a clutch go bad because there were just infertile eggs and I knew it you know when I candled them yeah. I didn't see anything I was like ah, I'll give you a chance you still know, cross see what your happens. fingers right? yeah, I, yeah. I, see, I, see, I see what happens you know and they did everything they were going to do and I mean just I mean I put all the crappy ones on the left side all the good ones left side even going into the right side just a mold monster but 100% success on the other eggs I mean not the baby's just fine so if, if the egg's dead it's going to go bad. It's going to probably mold. But if it's fine, it's fine. You know, just, just yeah. let that thing roll. So, Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Well, I know you have a place to be in a very short period of time. So I I, yeah. I, I cannot thank you enough. For our first Hognose episode, this one, this is in my top top five, man. This oh, no, dude. Yeah. And, dude, and I thanks, love that. I yeah, mean, we still have a whole second episode oh, to yeah. do on morphs on this. You know, no. so, I mean, this is fantastic. We but we but we need to probably allocate an extra half hour there because I mean it, it'll just be <laughs> yeah. crazy. I mean mm-hmm. the stuff that's going on with these guys. You know, it's finally almost like corn snake and ball python mm-hmm. status. Yeah. you know, what I mean it's uh, it you're not just like the hell out of me. Yeah, you're not just hatching a clutch uh-huh. and it's like, all right, it's albino or it's head albino. You know, it's like I didn't even know those genes were going to make that color. You know, yeah. it, uh, it was it's it's just incredible what's what's uh, been done. I have so. one quick question on that front and then we'll wrap. Sure. It. Do you yeah. do you think. Uh, are we just at the infancy of this explosion oh, or, yeah. or, or do you think we're, we're mid explosion? Good question. I would say not mid, but we're still at the end. So probably in between. Uh, okay. You know, I'm working with uh, three uh, color mutations here that haven't been described yet that I'm 
proving out currently. Everything's mm-hmm. acting uh, the way that they're supposed to act and everything, though. I know of uh, a couple other breeders that have some some brand-new color mutations out there as well. So there, there's still a lot to happen. I mean, yeah. you know, you guys, you guys know. You've been around. You know, there's a piebald somewhere. We just yeah. have to unlock it. There's a jaguar somewhere. We just have to unlock it. You know, all these all these color mutations, you know, are in this species as well. We just got to find it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, it's it's constantly happening. And with, uh, you know, closed collections and close gene pools, we're, we're finding more and more all the time. So, uh, yeah, very I cool. I think Fantastic. this is definitely the species that there's so many others where – most of the mutations you see now are combinations of genes and mutations that were already out there. So you're mm-hmm. getting layered on. But when it comes to all species that are popular in the hobby right now, I think hognose are the ones that we see so many new single gene mutations mm-hmm. hitting. And I think there's still a lot more to your point yeah. that we're going to continue. Yeah, it, it's the hot one. It is yeah. the hot mm-hmm. one, hands down. Yeah, and we'll we'll have to save it for next time. But uh, the Lucy, yeah, you know, I, oh, I know yeah. you brought it up. You know, it, it, it's something that will be interesting to talk about the the legacy yeah. of the Lucy. Who got their hands on it? Why you know it took so long? How many are are, are out there? There, there's lots of them. You know, what I mean, yeah. so yeah. it's a it's a very interesting gene. I don't like it personally. Um, you know, <laughs> we, you know, we can save that for the next time. But I like pattern. I like pattern yep. on snakes, mm-hmm. so you know it's it's a white snake. So, yeah. <laughs> you know. but, well, you know, everyone well, has their fa- everyone has their fancy. You know, yeah. some people like white snakes, and you know that's just not mine. So, well, thank you so much for coming on, John. We we will absolutely have episode two if you're willing to do it. This was oh, hundred percent. Ah, sweet, sweet, sweet. So. If, if people want to find you, if people have questions, if people want to potentially get a hog nose snake from you, where do you recommend they go? Instagram. It's the only thing I do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Shovel Naves 82, um, just like Shovel, like what you dig with, nose like your face, 82. Uh, hog nose, you know, had to had to find something uh, yeah. on Instagram. And uh, my business partner also has uh, Fathom Hogs on Facebook. Um, you know, you, you can definitely get to us from there as well. Uh, but I primarily stay on Instagram. So, yeah, reach out. And, cool. you know, if you just even want to chat snakes or have a question or problem solve, I, I, I love doing that stuff with people. So, you know, anyone can reach out. Feel free to. Fantastic. Fantastic. And, Clint, where can people find you? Uh, check us out on metazotics.com. You can uh, email me at metazotics at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. You can uh, message me personally, Clint Bartley. Uh, or Metazotics uh, Facebook and on Instagram we are Metazotics LLC Fantastic and me, uh, Dr. Crawdad Instagram, Zach Lofman Facebook and here's the shame, shameless plug I think it's been consistent all this is our 40th episode so all 40 episodes have had me asking if you want to do a master's degree and you want to play with snakes in an academic setting I might bring the pain when you write your thesis but other than that it'll be a joyful time uh, hit me up, write an email, um, uh, instrument or sorry, DMs, PMs, whatever you want to do. Um, I'm always willing. We've, I've got some wonderful students working with me now, and hognose snakes are definitely going to be a focus for the next couple years. Um, so 
that is that. So with that being said, uh, we are happy members of the NPR network. So thank you, Eric. Uh, I will throw it out there, the goat. And with that being said, um, if it's morning, afternoon, evening, or night, whatever time it is, I hope you're having a good one. Later. Later.